As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. I find if you don't ask these questions, if you sort of push them back and try to ignore them and push them out of the way, then you don't develop a solid faith. Your faith ends up being shallow and you have these doubts in the back of your mind that weaken your faith. Whereas if you would embrace the question and just go ahead and say, all right, let me ask, is there a God? Then when you work that through, your faith actually is strengthened. Whether you're a Christian or if you're, if you're a Christian and if you're not a Christian, it's a great place of discovery because I find a lot of non-Christians want to stay in a permanently agnostic position. Uh, well, I just don't know enough. I don't, and I don't know if you can know. So I don't, I'm not going to say there is a God or is not a God. Well, that's sort of a non-position. Hello and welcome back to Unbelievable. If you regularly join us, it is great to be with you. I'm Billy Hollowell, and this is the show that gets Christians, skeptics, and everyone in between discussing and debating the topics that matter to all of us. We've got a great response to the first part of this show on the most Googled questions on God, and we are about to hear the second part, where guest Bruce Miller, author of The Seven Big Questions, Searching for God, Truth, and Purpose, discusses the final two big questions. Now, in a moment, we will join Ruth Jackson, who starts by asking Bruce about the evidences for God. Hit that subscribe button, or if the show raises more questions for you, we would love to hear from you. But for now, let's get on with the conversation. Here is Ruth Jackson. Well, Bruce, welcome back to the show. We're going to talk about two more of the questions in your brilliant book. Um, so let's just dive straight in with the that is there right, a Ruth, let's do it. Let's jump right in. <laughs> I mean, the first question in this episode is, is quite a big one. Is there a God? Um, and I guess the first thing I'd want to know was, is like, would you approach this question differently for a Christian and a non-Christian? Because presumably a Christian would know that there was a God. Um, but, but I mean, it might still be something that they wrestle with. But how would you right. approach that question? It would, it would be, it's, you know, you'd think that for a Christian, you would know there's a God. But I find that many Christians ask this question because when you, when maybe there's something that's shaken your faith, rattled you, uh, it might be a, a TV program you watched or something you've been exposed to, or it might be something you've experienced or even a conversation with somebody you care about, somebody in your family who um, has asked you some hard questions you're not sure how to answer. And what happens is you begin to wonder, maybe it's all not true. Maybe everything I've believed is wrong about Christianity and then even God. Does, what that leads you to is the, really the fundamental questions, because you're really wondering, is Christianity itself true? But what that takes you to at a deep level is, is the question, is there even a God at all? Mm-hmm. And so I think this is a question Christians ask. And in fact, I would say it's a question it's good to ask. 
um, one of the things we've been talking about together, Ruth, is the value of asking questions. And I find if you don't ask these questions, if you sort of push them back and try to ignore them and push them out of the way, then you don't develop a solid faith. Your faith ends up being shallow and you have these doubts in the back of your mind that weaken your faith. Whereas if you would embrace the question and just go ahead and say, all right, let me ask, is there a God? Then when you work that through, your faith actually is strengthened. Mm-hmm. Whether you're a Christian or if you're, if you're a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, it's a great place of discovery. Because I find a lot of non-Christians want to stay in a permanently agnostic position. Uh, well, I just don't know enough. I don't, and I don't know if you can know. So I don't, I'm not going to say there is a God or is not a God. Mm. Well, that's sort of a non-position. I love, um, I, I've quoted loads from your book already, but I just love it. So I'm going to keep quoting. Um, I love what you say okay, where you no, say. I like quoting it. So don't <laughs> <laughs> People still need to read the book, though, just just to be clear. Um, but you say God is more than the conclusion of a logical argument. Yet believing in God's existence is not irrational or without evidence. So I guess I'd love to ask you, what are some of those evidences, do you think? Yeah, and I think it's important to, to speak of them as evidences. So as we talked about in the previous uh, program, that we don't have absolute knowledge. God is not the conclusion of a logical argument like two plus two is four. He's more than that, not less than that. There are rational, reasonable evidences why God exists. And so I, I have this image that I use in the book of like when you walk into a dark room, especially if you've been in the light and your eyes are adjusted to bright light, and then you walk into a pitch dark room, you can't see anything, but you, you feel like I think there's someone else in the room. You sense a presence, but you don't know. So you light a candle. And that light enables you to maybe see someone. You light a second candle and a third candle and a fourth candle. And by the time you've lit the fourth candle, you can perceive there is someone else in the room. So I'm using that illustration to, to then develop or light four candles, which would be four evidences that got, for the fact that God does exist that would give us to lead, lead us to believe it is rational, reasonable to believe that God exists. And is there one for you which is particularly compelling, do you think, or is it the kind of, com- I can never say that word, cumulative, <laughs> or, you know, yes. adding it all together? Is, is really that think, what for you yeah, is? I really is, think it's the culmination of all the arguments, uh, all added together, that are persuasive to me that it is more rational, more, more reasonable to believe that there is a God than to believe that there is not a God. You quote Einstein in your book, um, who says that science without religion is lame and religion without science is blind. What do you think Einstein meant by that? And what was your purpose in including it in the book? Now, so many people believe that religion and science are opposed. And sometimes you either have to accept one or the other. Either I'm going to be a person of science or I'm going to be a person of faith or religion. But in fact, Einstein was pointing out that you don't have, that's, not a, that's a false disjunction. You don't have to oppose them. In fact, they're not opposed. And that religion and faith work together um, and are not, they're not at odds with each other. And some of the questions they ask and answer are different, but they're not at, they're not, you don't have to reject science as a person of faith, nor as a person of, of science do you have to reject faith. And um, this might be really difficult to sort of bring into a really concise way, but let's imagine you were 
in an elevator or a lift for the British listeners. Um, <laughs> the, the, kind of the elevator pitch of, you know, you've got a minute or however long it takes to get up in the elevator to share what you think are the kind of most compelling arguments for the existence of God. What, what would be your kind of elevator pitch for the existence of God? Well, I think if I had time to light all four candles, I would. But one that I think is particularly compelling is the argument from complexity or design. And that is that our universe manifests incredibly intricate design. There's an old illustration of a person walking along a beach and picking up seashells and perhaps to take home to their children. And then all of a sudden you, you stumble on a watch and you pick up the watch and no one is going to mistake a watch for a seashell. You wonder who lost their watch. Maybe I could return this to the owner. And there's a, because you realize there's a difference between the complexity of the watch and the complexity of the seashell. So, for instance, there's a difference between, let's say, the Grand Canyon. And it's beautiful. It's been made, or, but it's just through erosion. There's a process that describes why, where the Grand Canyon came from. On the other hand, when you look at the pyramids in Egypt, you are aware that someone made those. You don't think, oh, there was erosion that created these pyramids. You wonder how in the world did people build these pyramids a long time ago? Because we intuitively understand the difference between one level of complexity and the other. So when you look at our world and you look at the complexity of DNA, for instance, or a cell, or even the stars, and you're like, these are, this is not explainable by just a repeated process like a seashell. This is much more like the pyramids. For, for example, the fact that the um, the human code for the DNA has got three billion letters or something in it, right, hasn't it? It's right. like that long. Brilliant. Well, um, Bruce, that feels like a good place to to leave that question because I, I, you know, I really would recommend people go and read the book to find out what are those other three candles. Um, but as you said in a previous episode, one of the questions that is just the most pertinent and probably the most asked by Christians and non-Christians alike, and, and in my experience, certainly anecdotally, is the reason why most of my friends or family have left the faith is because of pain and suffering. So I know this is going to be a really difficult topic, but I, I'd love us to kind of delve into this a little bit. Why does God allow pain and suffering? And I guess the first thing I'd love to know is, like, do you feel in some ways this is easier to answer within a Christian context? Because I suppose in some senses you're dealing with the character of God. Like, is he trustworthy? Is he kind? Is he good? Whereas for a non-Christian, you're sort of dealing with the very existence of God, which is which is what is at stake potentially when a non-Christian is asking this question. Yeah, I, I really do think that the, the Christian answer, the answer out of the scripture, is so much more satisfying than any, any other answer. And I, I just want to say at the outset that my heart goes out to you if you're suffering right now. If you're going through something, someone has done something terrible to you, or you've experienced tremendous pain and suffering, um, I want you to know God is with you, and he cares about you, and you're not alone. And I, I care about you, and I know you do, Ruth. We don't want anyone to suffer. And um, it, it's just difficult. And so it's much more than just an intellectual question, much more than just a, uh, a theory to talk about. This is, is, is so tangible, so real, and so visceral, so deep for people. So having said that, the fact of evil and suffering is there no matter what worldview you take. 
And so sometimes people think, well, why did God allow pain and suffering? And there must not be a God if there's pain and suffering. Okay, we'll take God away. Now all you have are pain and suffering. So it doesn't make it any easier in terms of just intellectually explaining it. But I find that, so also as we begin to talk about it, we're talking about it in the abstract, not in the specific. So one question is, why is there rape at all? A different question is, why was a particular person raped? Mm -hmm. And we just don't have an explanation for why this person in this moment was killed in a car accident and this other person was in an accident and only got a small scrape. We, we don't have answers for that. We can ask the question, why is anyone killed in a car accident? Why is anyone um, cheated on or betrayed by somebody? So in there, when we look at this, you look at the overall whole storyline of the Bible, and really it's looking at the entire story of God's work in the world that, that gives us the most solid answer to this question. And you go into great detail um, in, in the book about this, and I think you know, it's really important that you do do that. And I guess this might be a really difficult question to answer, but, but how are you personally able to still believe in God despite the suffering that you have seen and experienced? You know, you're a pastor, you must have walked through so many people going through just some awful things. How are you able to reconcile the goodness of God, your, your belief in God with some of the things that you've seen and experienced? And really it is, it is uh, Ruth, this, this whole story that starts in creation that God created us with the ability to make choices that matter. And so now as a grandfather, I have a, a nine-year-old granddaughter. And if I, if I forced her to give me a hug, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that would have that much meaning. But when she, her name is Arabella, she goes by Belle. And when Belle runs up and throws her arms around me and says she loves me, she chose to do that. She could have chosen not to. And the, the, the depth of feeling for me, for my granddaughter to hug me and love me is huge. But if we were just robots or if we wrote a, a software program that forced my granddaughter to love me somehow, it really wouldn't have any meaning. It, and so God has given us the dignity of making choices that matter, which means we choose good. And, and a lot of us do, and those result in good results for ourselves and others. And when we choose something wrong and we hurt someone else, that creates pain. But the fact that we have that choice is a gift from God that carries with it both the opportunity for true, genuine love and for real pain. I suppose that answers, um, you know, whether satisfactory or, or not, depending on who you are, the, the question of kind of moral evil but what about natural evil, for want of a better phrase, that natural disasters, right. cancer, sickness, things like that? Cancer, hurricanes, all mm. of that. And in the biblical story, whether you accept the Bible or not, you to it, I, think it's, I think it's important to understand, whether you agree with it or not, at least to understand it before you choose to agree or disagree, is that when we, in the origin story, when humanity, Adam and Eve, chose to sin, it affected the entire creation. So the Bible talks about even the creation, the earth groaning in, it uses even the phrase in childbirth, so mm-hmm. in deep pain, so that the world itself, the creation itself is impacted by our choices. So the Bible uses imagery like thorns appear 
And so there is death that's entered the world and decay. And that's where natural evil, so to speak, as you would say, but hurricanes, uh, disease, which is really hard. Like when you have a little child who gets cancer as a, as a, a young child, a three-year-old, a six-year-old, that just seems so senseless. How can that be? And so people ask fairly the question, well, if God's all powerful and all good, why doesn't he do something about it? Why doesn't he stop it? And I think that's a fair question. And you mentioned three approaches to suffering, which I think are really helpful in your book, optimism, pessimism, and dualism. Would you sort of briefly define each one of those and kind of what you mean by that? Yeah, I was just trying to give maybe a simple categorization of the ways humans have answered this question. And so a pessimist says something like, well, let's go to optimist. An optimist says something like evil doesn't even exist. Don't worry about it. There's some forms of Buddhism who would be along this line, which is if you just understood it all correctly, there really is no evil. Or it goes like this, um, at just kind of an everyday level. Well, really, uh, good comes out of suffering. And it's really not bad. It's really good. And you learn the most in hard times. And honestly, it's all good. It's not bad. Well, that's not really satisfying. And then a pessimistic view is, you. it's just, um, there is no meaning. It's, it's the nihilist view that there, you just, you suffer, you hurt, you experience pain, you die, that's it. No meaning, no value, no purpose, no explanation. It's just brutal. A dualist point of view is that there's a good force and an evil force, and they're battling against each other, kind of a Star Wars philosophy. Yeah. And there's a there's a there's a good a good and an evil, and they're at war with each other, and evil comes out of that battle. And where would Christianity fit within that? Not not in any of those categories. Well, Christianity doesn't fit any of those categories. You know, I raised the question, why doesn't God do something about sin and evil and suffering and pain? And the answer is, he did. Mm-hmm. He did something dramatic about it. He sent his one and only son. And actually, the Bible says he took on pain. He took on suffering on his own shoulders. Literally, he died for us. Jesus Christ did on the cross, which was which was... God's way of addressing evil and suffering, which is utterly dramatic, incredibly loving, almost beyond belief that God would become a human being, become one of us to rescue us from sin and evil and suffering. It's just amazing. Bruce, how would you respond to that accusation that if God created everything and evil's, you know, part of the world, then he must have created evil? Because I guess would, I mean... Actually, that wouldn't be dualism, would it? No, that would be, yeah, God creating everything and, and evil is therefore part of everything. So he must have, I guess, even if indirectly created evil. What right, that's a, that? yeah, and, and, and that's a, that's an important question. It's been asked, frankly, for thousands of years. And St. Augustine gave, I think, what is the, uh, the best answer, which is that evil is not a thing. He argued that evil is a lack. For instance, he would say darkness is, does, is not a thing. It's the absence of light. And so, like rust cannot exist without metal. If you have no metal, you have no rust. So evil is not a thing in and of itself. It's real, but it's not a thing in and of itself. It's a lack of a thing. So if you had no good, you would have no evil. So I suppose, could someone then say if there was no God, there would be no evil? Yes, you could go through that direction. If there is no God, there is no evil. And then you start going into 
uh, what I think is, is the, the best competing view against Christianity is nihilism. I think Friedrich Nietzsche was the most honest, which is, sure, if there is no God, there is no evil in that, in an absolute sense. Uh, you can't even say that murder is evil. It's just taking a life of any, like taking a life of any um, organism. And pain itself is not bad, not morally bad. It's just a thing that exists. And there is no meaning. There is no purpose. There is no God. There is no good or evil. We just live, we hurt, we die, and that's it. Without God, without Christianity, I think that's the most honest view. But I guess it comes down to the question of what's the most satisfying and what works in a, in a you know, what well, works I'd for say, real life. I'd say not only satisfying and works, although I think both of those have merit, but also what's the most reasonable, what's the most rational. And ultimately, it's what's, the, what's real, what's true. Yeah. Is there a God or not? If it, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's not a question of preference. That's often where there's confusion. Really, there either there is a God or there's not. Mm. Or maybe what kind of God is there? Um, but he exists whether we believe in him or not. What is our response to people who are suffering around us? What should we be doing to help those around us who are suffering? I think the, the real response is to do what, what God did for us, which is enter into our world, enter into our suffering, and so to, to love people. And so it's compassion and empathy and bringing real help to people, real healing, to walk with them in their journey of pain and suffering, and to be, to the Bible talks about Christians being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, that we would bring his love and his presence into people's hurt and pain. Billy Hollowell popping in here as in a moment, we will need to take a quick break. But today on Unbelievable, just so you know, we're discussing the most Googled questions about God. Check out our new Connect section at premierunbelievable.com and let us know what you think. And if you have more questions and you'd like us to maybe cover different aspects and different issues, you can email us over at unbelievable at premier.org.uk. Ruth Jackson is in conversation with Bruce Miller, author of The Seven Big Questions, Searching for God, Truth, and Purpose. And in a moment, we will return to that discussion. Don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment, and we will return to the most Googled questions about God with Ruth Jackson and Bruce Miller. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Anti Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Thank you. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Unbelievable, the show that gets Christians, skeptics, agnostics, and all those in between thinking about the topics that matter to all of us. I'm Billy Hollowell, and this is part two of the most Googled questions about God with Ruth Jackson and Bruce Miller. Why does God allow so much pain and suffering? Is the Bible reliable? And how can I know God? Plenty of issues and questions to get stuck into. And we want you to take a moment, by the way, rate this podcast on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening on. We always appreciate that. But for now, we're going to move on with the show. Here's Ruth Jackson. Well, Bruce, we've got the final two questions in your book. Is the Bible reliable and how can I know God personally or can I know God personally? Um, Let's look at the first one first. Is the Bible reliable? I mean, is this a question predominantly for non-Christians? Because presumably for most Christians, um, it's something of a given that the Bible is at least somewhat reliable, would you say? I would say probably somewhat reliable, but I find this is a question that that Christians and non-Christians ask. And it seems that it's common at Christmas and Easter for there to be specials on television that that are critiquing the Bible. And there'll be some new expose or some somebody saying that the Bible's not reliable or you can't count on it. It's not trustworthy. And Christians themselves find things that they see that maybe they see as a contradiction or something they don't understand or something that's offensive that, that causes them to wonder, is it really reliable? Can I count on the Bible? Certainly a question from non, for non-Christians too. And do you think this is something that, like this question is something that we need to ask earlier than maybe we used to because people are now more skeptical of the Bible? I know that obviously in some of your early answers, you kind of draw on the Bible. And is that something where if we're having a conversation with our friends and we're using the Bible as kind of I guess, to bolster our argument, do we need to go back a few steps in order to kind of show them that we think the Bible is reliable before using it to bolster our arguments about other questions? I think that makes logical sense for us, you know, to to bolster the Bible. But I would say you can, uh, what you can do, and I do in the book, is to say, you know, whether you believe the Bible is true or not, at least it's worth understanding the point of view. Mm -hmm. You know, wouldn't you agree that the Bible is a classic book that's had a huge impact, which it has? And so... I'm not asking you to believe the Bible or to accept it as true, but I do want to share what it has to say. So rather than using the Bible to bolster your argument, I would use it to explain your argument and to to say to your friend, look, whether you accept the Bible or not, I just want you to be sure you're rejecting something that's actually true. Uh, In other words, a lot of people will reject a a straw man, which is a, a weak form of an argument, or what they might imagine is true about Christianity without really understanding it. So I would use the Bible not to bolster your argument, but to give definition to it or explanation to it to make it clear to people. So I suppose, would you limit your references to the Bible with non-Christians because of their potential skepticism towards it? Or would you just use the approach that you've been talking about just there? I would tend to limit it in my work with non-Christians or sometimes I'll quote the Bible without saying chapter and verse. Mm -hmm. Or I might say, Here's what the Bible's point of view is. You can agree with it or disagree, but I just want to be sure you understand it before you disagree with it. Because mm-hmm. many people don't even understand it. And so making the point that, you know, as you're talking with someone, in fact, you will, we want to do this in the reverse, is you want to really understand someone's argument before you disagree. And in fact, I try to be able to make the other person's argument as well or better than they make it mm-hmm. before I disagree with it. Yeah. What do you think are some of those big objections that people have to the Bible? I guess, you know, why would people think that it's not reliable? 
Yeah, a lot of people would say, look, the Bible is a translation of a translation of a translation. And they would use the old telephone game. I don't know if you're familiar with that game, but the idea is that, that a group of people are in a circle and someone whispers to the person next to them a story. And then that person tells the other person it goes around the circle. And by the time it gets around the circle, it's nothing like it started with. It gets all distorted and, and changed. And so the feeling is, isn't that the case with the Bible? That it's it's been translated and translated so many times. Certainly the English Bible we have today must be nothing like the original. And that's a common point of view. Well, the good news is that that's completely erroneous. And actually, the Bible is translated today, good standard English translations go back to the earliest manuscripts that exist. So it's not a translation of a translation. It goes back to the original Greek and Hebrew, some of the Bible in Aramaic, most in Greek and Hebrew. And in fact, today, we have discovered more manuscripts, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and even today, we're finding new manuscripts hidden away in monasteries, and people today are photographing them, digitizing them, making them available, so that scholars today have access to more Greek and Hebrew manuscripts than have ever existed. So the most recent current English translations are more accurate than any translation that's ever been done. What do you think personally is the most difficult passage in the Bible? And I guess, importantly, how would you kind of reconcile that difficulty with, with your faith? There are passages in the Bible that I don't fully understand and, or that don't totally make sense to me. And I, I think I'll ask God about them one day. And I think this is back to something we talked about early on about how much can we know? How much can we know with certainty or know absolutely or exhaustively? And I don't think this side of eternity, we're going to understand every line in the Bible perfectly. That's, that's too high an expectation. I think we can understand the Bible well enough and hear the central message, love God and love others, the two great commandments. But some of the killing in the Old Testament, some of the laws seem strange to me, and some of the, the attack that God or, ordains of the Canaanite people I've, I've read some explanations, I have some explanations, but still some of it is not completely satisfying to me. And so I find I still have questions. And I would, I would su suggest that probably you, and as, as a listener, you're still going to have questions. Part of what that does is spur me on to study more. Mm. And as I read, the Bible has been studied so long, when you really study most any passage, you'll find there are good explanations of almost every passage in the Bible. You've definitely answered this a little bit already, but how do we approach some of those really difficult passages in the Bible, do you think? Yeah, I want to, I want to encourage you. you know, for most people, the Bible is a strange book. It's a big book. It's actually 66 books all combined together that remarkably tell one story. But these are ancient books. And so we would expect that there's an ancient context that is distant from us culturally, distant from us in time. So... When we read about shepherds, at least I don't know about you, but I've never, I cared for sheep. I, I don't own a sheep. <laughs> and so I have to understand a little bit about shepherding to understand the metaphor and what's being communicated there. And so, the, again, the good news is there are biblical scholars. There are people who have studied the ancient culture, who've studied Greek and Hebrew. And there you have we have access today, especially with the internet, to really good scholarship that can help us understand the Bible. So you want to understand the Bible in its cultural context. 
Secondly, the Bible is written in literary genres that sometimes people ignore. So it's not all one form of literature. There are There's legal literature, there's poetry, there's history, there are letters. And so you want to read the, the Bible in the literary genre that it's written in. If you don't read Proverbs as proverbial wisdom literature and take it as promises, that can be confusing. Mm-hmm. So there's some simple, it, it's called the, the ultimately, the study of, her, of interpretation is called hermeneutics. So there's good reading of the Bible, just like any other literature that you can learn to read well. You don't have to be a scholar, but you can access good scholarship to understand the Bible well. It's one thing, I guess, not understanding cultural references and things like that, but how would you respond to people who say that the Bible is is racist or sexist or at the very least hugely, hugely out of date and out of touch? Yeah, uh, I really, the, those accusations of racist, sexist, out of touch often are just misunderstanding the cultural context. No, it's not a book written in the 21st century in our culture and our language. But when you read the Bible in its cultural context, you'll find that actually... It's the Bible and biblical principles that stand against racism for justice, against what the Bible calls favoritism or prejudice, and that the Bible actually honors women in a significant way. Um, Jesus stood against his own culture in elevating women. Women were the very first ones to discover Jesus' resurrection and tell that story as a, for instance, it was a woman who was the first uh, missionary, so to speak, who went and told her whole city the city of Sychar, about Jesus Christ. So I think you'll find that those are inaccurate descript- depictions of the Bible, and actually the principles and story and truth of the Bible is as relevant today as it was the day it was written. I suppose it's one thing understanding the kind of internal things that are going on inside the Bible, but how important is external evidence for the veracity of the Bible? No, I think external evidence is really important. Uh, I think, again, we should embrace questions. We should embrace truth. So if the Bible describes a city or a king, then we would expect to find that in archaeology. And so you can, when you're researching the, the accuracy of any ancient book, one thing you do is study archaeology. And so you look at archaeological finds, which you'll discover do support the Bible. Uh, it used to be that people thought, well, the Bible talks about camels, but they weren't domesticated back then. Well, we've since discovered, yes, they were domesticated back when the Bible says they were. Or the other place you go is you go to other ancient literature. And does other ancient literature confirm what the Bible talks about? And you'll find, yes, that's the case. There are books that talk about Herod and Pilate and characters that the Bible mentions are mentioned in other ancient literature, which confirms that, yes, in fact, it is historically accurate. Just before we jump into the final question, would you have any top tips for someone who wants to start reading the Bible? Yeah, I would encourage you to start reading the Bible. Some people start at the very beginning. That's not always the best in terms of Genesis. It's quite interesting to read maybe the first 11 chapters, but I would encourage you to read the Gospel of John. I think it's a great starting place. And then maybe from there to read the book of Romans. Those two books summarize, one, the life of Jesus Christ, and two, some overall theology or New Testament. So I would start with the Gospel of John and the book of Romans as a good starting point. Well, let's dive into the final question of your book. Can we know God personally? And is there a reason that you put this right at the end of your book? Yeah, I think this is ultimately where where these questions all point toward is it's not just a worldview, a conclusion of an argument, but it's can we have a real 
personal relationship with the living God. That, that thought is just absolutely remarkable because if it's true, oh my goodness, we can have a real relationship with the creator of the universe. That would be astounding. That would be remarkable were it true. And in fact, that is what the Bible offers to us. The Bible talks about it in terms of images like eternal life or reconciliation, that we were at odds with God and we can be reconciled. This is the message of what is called the gospel. The gospel is, I mean, just simply means good news. But God himself, as the Bible describes God, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it can sound like, boy, the Trinity is esoteric theology, but it's actually very practical and right to this point, which is that God exists in an eternal relationship of love among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the message of the gospel, the good news, salvation, is that we can enter into that love relationship, that we can actually be brought into, the Bible calls it being adopted into the family of God. That we are, other images are, we're united with Christ, reconciled to God, which is just, I find to be so incredibly beautiful and wonderful. On the flip side of that, why does God often seem so distant, do you think? Why doesn't he just sort of reveal himself in a really obvious way? I really don't know the answer to that, Ruth. I think that's a, that's one of those questions I ask too. Why doesn't God reveal himself in a more obvious, more direct way? I honestly don't know. I find sometimes, though, God's distance is not a matter of him but us. You know, sometimes in a relationship, you wonder why is our relationship distant and you're putting the blame on the other person. You realize, gosh, it's actually me. I'm the one who's distanced myself from God. Um, so I think that's something we want to look at is, are you really honestly pursuing God yourself and honestly seeking him on his own terms? Because he says, if you do, he uses the imagery of knocking at a door. If you do knock and seek and ask, he will answer and he will enter into a relationship with us. But there are times when God does feel distant. Does God does feel like he's far away. It's like your prayers are banging off the ceiling and you're not connecting. And in moments like that, I encourage you to take some extra time to pray, to read the Bible, to be still and really listen. And I think most times you will, you'll, you will enter into an experience with God that requires a little more than just a minute or two here or there in between things and the busyness of your life. Sometimes we need to slow down quite a bit more, uh, even to take a whole day off of work and say, let me just spend this day seeking God. Is religious experience, for want of a better a phrase, <clears throat> an important element of the Christian faith, do you think? Yeah, I really do. And I, I think that a lot of people misunderstand Christianity either to be a worldview, simply a, a sort of a life philosophy, or to be a set of rituals, mm. or thirdly, to be a set of religious rules, when in fact, the core of it is a relationship a real relationship with the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in which we can hear God through his word and prayer, and we can listen to God through the scripture as, as the Holy Spirit makes the scripture, the Bible come alive to us. And we can experience, for instance, you can experience peace, supernatural peace in very difficult times. There's a way God is communicating with you. You can experience joy in difficult times that is literally supernatural. This is something that you experience in the power of God. 
that is not explainable any other way. I mean, this might not be something that you've had lots of people ask you, but some I work with young people a lot and a lot of the young people I work with have articulated in various forms over the years that they've never felt God, again, for want of a better word. I mean, how would you respond to that objection that they've not felt God? Yeah, I think it's a it's an important question. Have you ever felt God? Have you ever experienced him in some way? And I would say, you know, you might have and you might not have recognized it. Or sometimes we've explained it away as just coincidence or just one of those things. But actually, I find that most people, when we sit and talk long enough, would say, I have had some supernatural experience or something I can't quite explain. These days, there's quite a few people moving away from a sheer materialism toward realizing there is something spiritual. There's something supernatural. I'm not sure what it is, but I believe there's something more than what I can taste and smell and sense just with my five senses. So they may or may not call it God. They may call it the supernatural or the spiritual, but some reality, some realm, some power that's more than themselves. Do you have any practical tips for someone wanting to actively pursue hearing God's voice in their life? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And a couple of things I would say, one is literally to pray, to ask God to say, I want to hear from you, God. I want to know you. Secondly is to read the Bible. If it really is God's word, then to read it, praying God speak to me through the Bible. The third thing I would say is to get with other people who are serious about seeking God. Find some other Christians, some other people, read the Bible with them, talk about it together. There's something about the experience of, of, of interacting with God with other people that can be powerful. And the fourth thing I would say is go to a worship service. And sometimes people don't want to go to a church. You don't have to be in a church to meet God. But I think there's also power in worship, singing together um, and, and experience, even though you may not believe in God, to try going to a worship service and asking God to speak to you in the context of that worship service. Another place I find people going is out in, in creation, in nature, Somehow the beauty of a forest, a mountain, a beach is a place where a lot of people have had an experience with God in settings like that. I think it's fair to say that we've all had wrestlings, doubts, things like that. How do we hold that intention with our faith and wanting to trust God, um, but being honest about our doubts, do you think? Yeah, I think that's such an important question. And I would encourage you that you can live with faith and doubt. And this is back to this big phrase I used, epistemological humility. But what I mean is we can know enough, we can know sufficiently, reliably, without knowing absolutely or exhaustively, which means we're always going to have some level of doubt, some level of questioning that runs through our mind, questions we haven't answered, passages in the Bible we don't quite understand. And even having that, we can still have a strong faith in God and a growing relationship with God. I think we see that in our everyday life experience. If you're married with your spouse or with a close friend, you have questions, you have concerns, you have um, difficulties. But if you have a good relationship, you have tremendous good times together and love together. Even if moments you wonder, does this person really love me? Are we really going to enjoy life together? And yet through that, and this is just a human analogy, because with God, it's at a, a different, at a higher level. 
but we can have good human relationships even with some degree of question and doubt in the midst of it. As we wrap up this series, which has been so helpful, and obviously I feel like we're sort of just skimming the surface and I would highly recommend going to read your book to find out more, but what are some of the things that you learn while writing this book? I really relearned the importance of asking questions seriously and not just passing them by and also listening and taking people seriously and moving beyond just the idea of sort of enjoying battering ideas around or to me, so much of social media is arguing and actually yelling and screaming at each other and demonizing your opponent as being dumb or bad, but rather instead to genuinely listen to each other. And so I think what a, what a, what a, one, I would encourage you to ask the question seriously, deeply, and then in a dialogue with a friend to take your friend seriously and to listen deeply and engage in a real dialogue, a real conversation where you're seeking truth together. Well, Bruce, that feels like a brilliant place to end. But thank you so much. And do please get a copy of The Seven Big Questions because there's so much great stuff in the book. Well, thank you, Ruth, so much for having me on the program. And what a joy to engage in this dialogue with you. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Bruce. You're most welcome. Well, there you have it. You have been listening to Ruth Jackson and Bruce Miller. I'm Billy Hollowell. And if you've got a burning question off the back of the show, something that maybe stuck out to you, a curiosity you have, we would love to hear from you. You can email us. The email address is unbelievable at premier.org.uk. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. I know that I have loved it. I've had a great time pondering all these questions and hearing the conversation. As always, we also want to hear your thoughts. So if you head on over to premierunbelievable.com, you can hover over the connect tab and you can find all of our social media channels there. And don't forget, if you sign up for our newsletter via the website, you will also get a free ebook. If you're watching on YouTube, click that subscribe button and rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to the show. It's a huge help to building up our podcast and our show here. For now, I'm Billy Hollowell, and it's been great to be with you. We'll see you again next time for more discussions and debates on Unbelievable. Until then, from me and the team, goodbye. Goodbye.